It's a pleasure to be here, and thank you for inviting me to contribute to this series of lectures. Um, having been here a few weeks ago to hear Malaya Malik's lecture, I know I have a hard act to follow. Um, but um, I appreciate uh, your introduction, Daniel, and um, also in particular your mentioning Oro Kornai, whose um, work has largely been forgotten, and it was nice to hear him re re remembered by you. Uh, before we start, there is a handout that should have been distributed, and um, if you have a copy, keep it handy, because I will refer to it from time to time in the course of the lecture. And finally, before I begin, I would like to dedicate this lecture to Bernard Green, Father Dr. Bernard Green, a close friend and colleague at St. Bernard's Hall, who died suddenly of a massive heart attack a few weeks ago. Um, I think Bernard would have been interested in this subject. Right, well, if you look at the handout, you'll see that the first part of it is uh, an outline of the lecture, which comes in four parts, beginning with the introduction, Socrates, the unwise. And I think, Daniel, we agree that we would warn people that this is going to be a little on the long side, this lecture, um, so that people don't get too um, impatient with me um, as time passes. But it will take me a good 50 to 55 minutes to deliver this argument, and I hope I keep your attention for most of that time. <clears throat> Have you ever bitten off more than you can chew? If so, you will understand how I felt when, after undertaking to give this lecture, I stood back, took stock, and thought about the title, Dealing with Difference, Jews, Muslims, and the British Left Today. It would take a panel of experts to do justice to the issues it raises, and I am not even a panel of one, for I am no expert. An expert is a person who knows a lot. I am the opposite. I am a philosopher. I follow the lead set by Socrates, who maintained that he was wise in just one respect, he knew that he did not know. This was the basis of his apology, which of course was not an apology at all, but an apologia or defense speech at his trial. He was charged with um, leading the youth of Athens astray. His argument to the court, a piece of impeccable logic, was along these lines. I know nothing, therefore I have nothing to teach the young. Therefore I could not have led them astray, therefore I did not lead them astray. The Athenians showed their respect for logic by condemning Socrates to death. I hope to get off a little lighter this evening, even though I will be trying your patience. They made him drink hemlock. I'll settle for a glass of Merlot afterwards, if that's available. <clears throat> Whenever Socrates took the lead in a conversation, the conversation turned inward. Know yourself. The phrase inscribed at the entrance to the Temple of Apollo at Delphi was his motto. As the Athenians went about their business, he would stop them in their tracks and pose fundamental questions. What is knowledge? What is justice? And so on. In every case, Socrates sought to get them to reflect. They would say what they make of the topic in question, and then, probing their answers, Socrates would confront them with themselves, with their style of thinking, the bent of their own minds. 
Now, I invite you to think of what I am setting out to do tonight as an inquiry in the spirit of Socrates, though not in his manner. He never gave lectures. Where it is the left that is being addressed and where the question is, what is difference? What does the left make of difference, specifically Muslim and Jewish? With an eye to the British context, I wish to inquire into the mind of the left on this question, seeking out its styles of thinking, its bent. I do not ask this question out of idle curiosity. Since the early 1960s and the rise of the black power movement and second wave feminism, the left has adapted to difference of race and gender. But religion, or what is denominated as religion, is another matter. At least since the Rushdie affair in 1989, Muslim difference has moved into the political foreground, dominating the debate over multiculturalism, while Jewish difference looms large in the ongoing controversy over Israel-Palestine. How does the left deal with these two kinds of difference? With difficulty, when that difference is asserted politically by Jews and Muslims themselves. Even defining this problematic is problematic. Jews do not all speak with one voice, nor do Muslims. And when they speak about politics, they do not necessarily speak as Muslims or as Jews. Moreover, who or what is the left? Which left? There's the hard left, the broad left, the far left, the center left, the old left, the new left, the liberal left, the Marxist left, the ultra left, the radical left, the social democratic left, and the democratic socialist left. Not the same thing. Not to mention the Jewish left and the Muslim left. And I'm sure there are lefts I've left out. Sorry, that pun had to come sometimes, so it's best to get it out of the way quickly. <laughs> a profusion of lefts, some overlapping, some at loggerheads, some somewhat spurious, and just one solitary lecture. But there is at least one thing that all varieties of left-wingers share, other than not being right-wing, a past, a formative period from which they emerge and which persists into the present. The past that is present today that is what my lecture is about. But what is today, and when did it begin? Well, following a hint from Colin Schindler in his recent book, Israel and the European Left, I shall say that today began roughly 12 to 13 years ago, around the turn of the new millennium. There were a number of incidents, 2001, 9-11, and a few others. During this period, there has been vigorous debate within the British left on the two subjects I've mentioned, Israel-Palestine and multiculturalism in the UK. The whole of my lecture could be built around these subjects and what the left does and does not, should or should not think. But this is not the angle of my approach. My aim, a la Socrates, is to turn inward, to the mind that is doing the thinking. You could say that I am interested in its leanings, or, with an ever so slight nod to Foucault, its sediments, especially the oldest layers, the ones laid down at its birth. Accordingly, in the next section, I revisit the genesis and early formation of the left, not in the manner of the historian who seeks to illuminate the past, but more like someone who is peering into the present, trying to bring what he sees into focus. The here and now is ultimately what concerns me, and in the third section, that's back to the present on the handout, I bring my analysis to bear on today's debates. The lecture concludes with a brief postscript, a twist to the figure of Nathan in Lessing's play Nathan the Wise, plus a pitch to the left for tomorrow. I said I am no expert, but no one can hold a candle to Socrates in this regard. He was expert at not being expert. 
He made his lack of knowledge the premise and the principle of all his conversations. He was an ignoramus par excellence. And although I could never be his equal in unwisdom, I endeavour, as I have said, to follow his lead. This means that I come neither to attack the left nor to defend it, but rather to critique it, to provoke it to reflect on its own parameters. And I should at this point declare an interest. My practical politics, though not necessarily the sources from which I derive them, are on the left. So when I say know yourself and reflect, I am looking into the room, but also into the mirror. Okay, so much my way of introduction. Now let me get into the meat of the matter, the birth of the left, the next section. The left did not, to borrow an Americanism, come out of left field, nor did it spring fully formed like Athena from the head of Zeus. It was a twinkle in the eye of early modernity, a spirit hovering in the air from the late Renaissance to the Protestant Reformation. But the true gestation of the left was the long liberal 18th century, which looks back to Locke and Spinoza, moves forward through such figures as Voltaire, Hume and Kant, and reaches a crescendo in the French Revolution, where the term, the left, first comes into use. This is prior to socialism. The left of the Jacobins and Montagnards is not quite the left that grew up in the 19th century, achieved power in the 20th, regrouped more than once from the 1960s on, and is alive, if not altogether well, today. But it is its infant self. In other words, and this is the basis of my analysis in this section of the lecture, the left was formed in the womb of the European Enlightenment. It is therefore to the Enlightenment that we must look for the initial and fateful shaping of the mind of the left. The first thing to note about the left is its name. It got its name, as probably everybody knows, from an accident of seating in the French Parliament. Roughly, supporters of the Ancien Régime sat to the right of the president, while their opponents, supporters of the revolution, sat to the left. Thus, the left was born into a conflict zone, and at its very inception defined itself against its opposite. It was against the monarchy, or at least absolute rule, against the church, or the power of the clergy, and so on. Had there been no right, there would have been no left. And this binary is its a priori form. Throughout its career, its antithesis, or rather its conception of its antithesis, is always integral to its thesis. The enemy is always part of the script. But you are wondering, what does this have to do with the way the British left today deals with Muslim and Jewish identity? Well, it boils down to this. It all depends on where those identities show up, on which side of the binary, in the script of the left. Okay, that's, that's the direction that I'm going to be following. Now, there's more to this binary than an empty form. In the minds of its proponents, the idea of enlightenment was constituted by a system of opposites in which a positive theme was twinned with a negative theme. This system, which I'm going to shortly set out, was subsumed under one overarching opposition. Quote, the conflict between reason and unreason, which is how Peter Gay puts it in his classic study, The Enlightenment and Interpretation. It was not just the difference between two approaches to thinking, reasoning and unreasoning. The conflict was seen as a war, in his words, between good and evil. So if the French Revolutionary left was born in a conflict zone, it was also conceived in one. The Enlightenment was never just an intellectual movement. It was from the start a mission to enlighten benighted humanity 
and a call to arms against the powers of, as it were, endarkenment. Well, what exactly was the conflict between reason and unreason about? To answer this question, it will help to exercise a faculty that reason sometimes disparages, imagination. Imagine the Enlightenment to be a bright white box. This is the nearest I could get to it, this box, which is not quite bright and white. But on the lid of this box is the word reason, which I hope you can see even from the back of the room. On the reverse side of the lid, if I open it up, is the word unreason. So you've got reason as the name of the Enlightenment box and reason as its antithesis, as its opposite. The, the most fundamental twinning of themes in the Enlightenment. By the way, please ignore the Buffalo Bill on the side of the box and the picture of cowboys. This has got nothing to do with the lecture. It's a, a touch of post-modernity that has somehow sneaked in. This is definitely a lecture about modernity, the Enlightenment. So this is the Enlightenment box. Now... As Michael Miles used to say in the 1960s television game show, take your pick, take, uh, what's it called that? Yes, take your pick. Open the box in your imagination. Open the box. And what do you find? Coiled inside is a dazzling bracelet with six silver links. And if you look at the handout, you'll see that I've, I've done this diagrammatically at the bottom of the handout. You've got reason versus unreason. That's the, those are the twin themes on the lid of the box. And underneath that, the six links in the Enlightenment chain. And as you gingerly lift the bracelet out of the box, in your imagination, I'm doing it in reality, you make a charming discovery. Each link is inscribed with a name, and on the reverse side, you can't see it from there, it's opposite, just like on the lid. One link is called, and here you can look at the handout, one link is called science. Turn it over and you find the word myth or faith or superstition, which were more or less synonymous or interchangeable anyway for the Enlightenment. Science is linked, as you can see in the diagram, to secularity, whose opposite is clericalism. Secularity to freedom versus tyranny, freedom to equality versus privilege, equality to progress versus backwardness, and progress to the universal versus the particular. You can all see this on the diagram, and I will refer to these themes from time to time as... So please use this as a memoir, as a way to remind you what I'm talking about. And now I've forgotten what I'm talking about. <laughs> right. The sequence of the links doesn't matter, and I dare say there are other links that could be added, or other terms or names that could be used, but these will do. What the Enlightenment chain shows is this. If we unpack the box called reason, we find a system of interlinked or interlocking themes, a set of binaries that, taken together, articulate an entire agenda, chapter headings for the Enlightenment's mission to the world. This was its legacy to the left. Now, you might be surprised that religion is not one of the items on the bad side of the divide. Actually, it is there in all but name. But the status of religion in the mission of the Enlightenment is slightly complex. Enlightenment thinkers, for the most part, were deist rather than atheist. Voltaire is a case in point. That is to say, they tended to subscribe to the view that the existence of the world is explicable if and only if it was brought about by a supernatural being. How else could something come from nothing? But deism was God without religion. 
At any rate, it was God without revealed, organised religion. God as a postulate of reason, not as an article of faith. Moreover, having kick-started the world, God was largely seen by the deists as surplus to requirements. It's a small step from not being at all needed to not being at all, from deism to atheism. And this small step has been taken by the bulk of the left from its beginnings to the present day. What reason giveth, reason taketh away. And over time, reason, the complex structured idea of reason that took shape in the Enlightenment that I've sort of charted in this diagram, reason tended to take away religion, or rather to set it up as the embodiment of its opposite, unreason. Now let's try to conduct an imaginary experiment with this imaginary bracelet. See if you can separate the links in your mind, the links that are on the diagram. The diagram, the six links. Well, you can't. You might imagine you can, but you can't. Try as hard as you might, the Enlightenment chain is as indivisible as adamant. Indeed, when you look closely at each link, something odd occurs. Its theme starts to morph into one of the other themes, right there before your mind's eye. So, in the order I have used, though any order will do, Science, you can see this on the diagram, science transmutes into secularity, secularity into freedom, freedom into equality, equality into progress, progress into the universal, the universal into science, thus completing the circle. This sounds like something out of the Haggadah, doesn't it? I think it's Haggadah that has a similar sort of rhythm to it. By the same token, the opposite themes mutate into each other. Clericalism becomes tyranny, which becomes privilege, which becomes backwardness, which becomes the particular, completing the circle as myth. Any link can turn into any other link. And this might seem like a kind of alchemy, mental rather than metal, but there is nothing magical about it. This is the enlightenment we're talking about, so there can't be anything magical. There's a purely logical explanation for this. The links in the chain are related to each other internally, not externally. Each theme implies the others in the way that a hexagon implies six angles. They are six angles on reason. They are as unified as, if Voltaire will pardon the simile, the three persons in the Holy Trinity. And just as in the Christian doctrine there is one God in the three persons, so in the Enlightenment doctrine there is one reason in the six themes. In other words, reason contains the lot. All the links in the chain are implicit in the name on the Enlightenment box, reason. Or to give it its full title, the European Enlightenment box. To complete the imaginary experiment, carefully put the bracelet back where you found it in your mind, and I will do this literally, putting the Enlightenment chain back in the Enlightenment box. Close it. Now, gift wrap the box in your mind. And when you're ready, hold out your hand and present the box to the world. This truly liberal gesture brings us to what is, so to speak, the missing link, the final binary. Progressive West versus backward East, where West is Europe and East is a metonym for the rest of the globe. Not that the Enlightenment thinkers thought that all Europe is on the side of reason, far from it, nor did they regard the whole of the rest of the world as benighted. But if the Enlightenment box were a voice box, it would speak with a European accent. When Judaism and Islam are slotted into this scheme, where do they show up? 
typically on the wrong side of the divide. For they are religions, not the universal, timeless religion of Voltaire and the deists, but particular historical religions. They are based on revelation, not reason. They are east, not west. Judaism was doubly tainted in the eyes of many Enlightenment thinkers, for it lay at the root of their chief Benoit, Christianity. They saw their rationalism as superseding Christianity. But precisely for this reason, they owed more to Christianity than they knew. Superseding it, they inherited the mantle of a universal mission, a crusade, to unreconstructed humanity. It was as if they said, anything you Christians can do, we rationalists can do better. And part of the inheritance was a narrative about Christianity's others, Islam and Judaism. It was not all negative. There was also a positive discourse about Jews and Muslims. But in the first place, positive and negative are often two sides of the exotic, where one side can flip into the other. And in the second place, the negative discourse prevailed. Adam Sutcliffe, in his book, Judaism and Enlightenment, gives a measured assessment of how Jews were seen at the time. He points out that there were, I quote him, shifts and ambiguities of Enlightenment thought concerning Judaism. Nonetheless, the role of Judaism predominantly was as a foil. Quote, in much Enlightenment thought, the vital conceptual space of that which is most deeply antithetical to reason, Enlightenment's defining other, was occupied above all by the Jews. In his discussion of Jean-Francois Lyotard's Heidegger and the Jews, Sutcliffe endorses Lyotard's view, I quote, the Jews did indeed represent the Enlightenment's primary unassimilable other. Why unassimilable? Because the antithesis cannot be assimilated into the thesis, unless it ceases to be antithetical, which means ceasing to be itself. Ceasing to be itself. This was precisely the condition on which emancipation was on offer to Jews in Europe in the 18th and 19th centuries, liberty in exchange for identity. In the words of David Cesarani, in his book, The Left and the Jews, the Jews and the Left, this was to be the perpetual dilemma which the left posed to the Jews. That is to say, the typical prescription on the left for Jewish difference is assimilate. Assimilation, says Enzo Traverso in his study, The Marxists and the Jewish Question, was, and I quote, a kind of dogma for the great majority of Marxists. Following the publication of Marx's essays or Jordanfrager in 1844, but it was not an anti-Semitic dogma exactly. After all, notwithstanding the malign rhetoric of his essay, Marx argued in favour of Jewish emancipation. And the Marxist left, like the left in general, has followed suit, opposing social and political exclusion of the Jews. However, as Traverso observes, the Marxist approach was derived largely from the Enlightenment, quote, which identified emancipation with assimilation and could conceive the end of Jewish oppression only in terms of the overcoming of Jewish otherness, end of quote. For Jews, this is a familiar story, as old as the hills of Rome. It is another version of conversion, the underlying idea being that Jews need redeeming from their Judaism and brought into the fold of universal humanity. As Marx and Engels might have put it, Jews of the world assimilate, you have nothing to lose but your difference. For many Jews, this message might be liberating. But for many others, those who assert their Jewish difference, it is the kiss of dissolution. 
As for Muslims, their treatment in the Enlightenment was different but the same. The same because, along with Judaism, Islam, as Silvana Tomaselli tells us, quote, was one of the clearest embodiments of the other in the 18th century. Different because Europe had a separate screed against Islam. Islam, which was closely associated with Asia, connoted tyranny, despotism, bigotry, stagnation, and decline. All these qualities slip easily into the Enlightenment scheme. Asia becomes the stagnant continent, Europe the source of progress. Asia, the locus of religious fanaticism, Europe the site of reason and science, and so on. It was merely a matter of retuning. Inherited images of Jews and Muslims overlapped because Jews were widely seen at the time as Asiatic, the, the Oriental within. But there was also a distinctive discourse about Jews based on the Christian contrast between the so-called Old Testament and the New. Again, with a little tweaking, the old narrative about Jews as legalistic, money-loving, hard-hearted, stubborn, arrogant, insular, blindly revering tradition was effortlessly incorporated into the new gospel of reason, a new Judas for a new gospel, but the same old pariah, the Jews. Voltaire, in his philosophical dictionary, philosophical dictionary, noch, summed up the Jews this way, I quote, It is with regret that I discuss the Jews. This nation is, in many respects, the most detestable ever to have sullied the earth. Thus spake the apostle of universal humanity. The fact that this remark appears under the heading of tolerance might strike you as droll. And there again, if tolerance means putting up with the existence of a group you detest the most, it could not be more appropriate. The point, however, is this. Voltaire's contempt for Jews and Judaism was not merely idiosyncratic. It was ideological. This was how Jewish and Muslim difference was transmitted to the left in its infancy by the Enlightenment. It was written mainly into the negative side of the script. Now, perhaps I've devoted too much time to this phase of its career, though I barely scratched the surface, but I think it's important for the left to recollect from whence it came. For the traces of our origins are apt to be with us all our lives, often without our knowing it, and this is as true for traditions as it is for individuals. The tradition of the left, and it's easy for the left as it is for the Enlightenment to forget that it has a tradition at all, since the very word has a bad smell for a movement that sets its face against tradition. The tradition of the left begins here, with its legacy from the Enlightenment, an ambiguous nexus of themes, immensely inspiring, these six themes that I've put down here on the handout, immensely inspiring, but profoundly freighted, tied with a red ribbon and packaged as reason. To sum up, the idea of reason bequeathed to the left by the Enlightenment possessed a particular architecture, and this architecture has tended to condition the mind of the left down to the present day. That is the wager of my lecture, and that's why I've dwelt on the structure of reason as conceived in the Enlightenment. Earlier I said that the crucial question is where Muslims and Jews show up in the script of the left. When they show up as victims, as oppressed minorities, as groups who are persecuted or excluded or both, as immigrant communities who suffer discrimination and disadvantage, then the left tends to take their part. For then they are covered by the clauses of equality and freedom, two of the links in the chain. Even Voltaire, Sutcliffe informs us, I quote, was capable of an empathetic understanding of Jewish oppression. 
But in these circumstances, it is almost accidental that they are Jewish or Muslim. When, on the other hand, they assert their difference politically as Muslims and as Jews, then their aspect changes and they are liable to show up on the wrong side of the script, cast as antithetical to the whole package of themes that the left embraced at its birth, science, secularity, freedom, equality, and so on. This, in a nutshell, is my thesis. Okay, well, before I take the thesis into the arena of the British left today, which is the next section, I need to attach certain clarifications and caveats. I need, in other words, to cover myself a bit. First, when I call these themes inspiring, I am not being ironic. If there is a problem, it lies not in the themes themselves, but in the way they are packaged in the Enlightenment. I'm referring here to the six themes in, written in red under the word reason on the handout. The problem, as I say, lies in the way they're packaged in the Enlightenment, and this means the way that they, along with their polar opposites, are conceived. I'm thinking, for example, of the opposition between science and faith, or the equation, as is registered here on the, in the diagram, of faith with superstition, or the devaluation of myth. All of which inflect, and I'm inclined to say infect, the way we hear and use the word religion. I certainly do not set my face against reason for I follow Socrates' lead. But I seem to hear him whisper in my ear, what is reason? A whisper that will become more insistent towards the end of my lecture. But if you like, the Enlightenment had an answer to that question. And it's the answer to the question that I see as the main legacy of the Enlightenment to the left. And it is that answer that I think needs critiquing. Second, I'm not arguing for determinism, to say that the structure of the Enlightenment's conception of reason has tended to condition the mind of the left is to say just that and no more. It is not to claim that it determines the way the left either thinks or acts. I am arguing only that it lurks in the background, constraining, to a greater and lesser degree, the way the left deals with Muslim and Jewish difference. Third, as I acknowledged at the outset, the left is far from monolithic. The claim that I am making does not necessarily apply to the whole of the left, past and present. Fourth, I am not attempting to work this claim through tonight. It would take a book to do so. Fifth, dealing well with difference does not have to mean deferring to it. The left is perfectly entitled to press its own commitments. The question is whether and how it takes account of Jewish and Muslim difference in interpreting its commitments. Finally, the form of argument I am making is along these lines. My analysis seems to me to shed light on this question, does it not seem so to you? In other words, the argument I'm making is speculative. I cannot prove the thesis for which I'm arguing, nor do I think it can be disproved. The argument I'm making is a kind of meditation on the facts. I know this is anathema to the historians and social scientists in the room, and on the other hand, it's the very stuff of armchair philosophy. It is my bread and butter. Therefore, like my ancient Greek mentor when he was arraigned before his peers, I make no apology. Okay, third section, back to the present. The left, of course, has come a long way since its birth. Fairly early on in its life, it found itself confronted with the question of nationalities. And over a period of about 150 years, both the liberal left and the Marxist left, to mention two groups at opposite ends of the left-wing spectrum, have developed a wide range of accommodations for the concept of the nation. Moreover, as I mentioned earlier, in the last 50 years or so, the left has learnt to respect difference of race and gender. But religious difference is another matter. 
Typically, the liberal left, at one end of the spectrum, handles religious difference by excluding it from the realm of politics. What you do at home is your private affair, provided it is kept private. As long as you do not disturb the peace, the liberal will respect your right to mow the lawn at midnight, pray to the moon, or even listen to Grace's hits by Barry Manilow, if you want to. In other words, respect here means tolerate. It means following Voltaire's example in tolerating the intolerable Jews. Thus, the two principles governing the classical liberal left way of dealing with religious difference are these. One, mind your own business, and two, keep the volume down. These principles continue to hold sway for the liberal left today. For the Marxists, though, religion, with or without the volume turned up, is political business. More precisely, it is the business of the left to struggle against the conditions that give rise to what is, in Marx's phrase, the opium of the people. Now, while the sense of this phrase in context is actually complex, the corollary is simple. For a Marxist, there is no room for neutrality on the question of religion, for a classical Marxist. Religion is a function of both alienation from nature and of the oppression of the proletariat by the ruling class. The problem with religious difference is that it is religious. Now, the $64 question is this. Is Muslim and Jewish difference religious? To the extent that it is, what does this mean? For those Jews and Muslims who assert their difference as religious, and not all do, does it mean the same as it means to a left whose concept of religion is taken over from the Enlightenment? Is religious difference a difference within a single category, religion, and then you've got Jews, Muslims, Christians, Hindus, Buddhists, and so on? Or is it the difference between different categories that go by the same name, religion? I pose these questions not with a view to answering them. It would take forever but in order to give a glimpse of the difficulty of the terrain on which we would have to embark if we were to explore thoroughly the way the left deals with Muslim and Jewish difference, when that difference is asserted by Jews and Muslims themselves. This is also my apologia, my defence for the fragmentary nature of what follows. The important thing to see here, though, is that the terrain is that complex. We can't get into it, but we're so used to thinking that the subject of religion is somehow homogenous. We all know what religion is, and then we just go on and talk about it. What I'm trying to do is to show, is to problematise that question. The Jewish case and the Muslim case diverge, though in the end they raise the same questions about the capacity of the left to adapt to difference. I shall broach each in turn the Jewish case in connection with the debate over Israel-Palestine and the Muslim case in the context of the debate over multiculturalism in the UK. A few years ago, but well within the time span of today... I took part in a panel discussion under the auspices of the Jewish Community Centre for London. The topic was Israel and the left, and the question I focused on was this. Has the left lost its way over Israel, or is it the other way round? Is it Israel that has lost its way? Similarly, we might ask, has the left lost its way over multiculturalism, or is it the other way round? Is it multiculturalism that has lost its way? I shall take up both these either-ors, but I shall not discuss them in their own right. Rather, I shall use them partly as just context for what I'm going to say, and partly as windows through which to peek into the current mind of the left. My remarks will not only be incomplete, but also conjectural. I hope, if nothing else, they spark discussion. So, A, the Jewish case. The question of Jewish identity is complicated because it is so anomalous. 
Judaism never seems to stand still long enough to have a name tag tied to it. Religion, of course, is one, but also nation, people, culture, ethnicity, race, even caste and class. All these tags have been tried and none ever sticks. Race, caste and class are just misbegotten, if you ask me, but as for the rest, Judaism seems unable to settle into being one thing and not another. Jewish is a wandering cipher. Or, as I've expressed it elsewhere, it is the Houdini among identities, always escaping the boxes into which it is put. Zygmunt Bauman describes the Jews of Europe as a non-national nation. Well, they're also a non-religious religion. They were neither this nor that, but they were most certainly, as, was, as I noted earlier, the other. Their otherness ultimately lay in the fact that they did not fit the frame. They were beyond the conceptual pell, inside the borders of Europe, but outside its categories. Where in the scheme of things did they belong? That was the ultimate Jewish question. And the absence of an answer was as frustrating for the left as it was for the Enlightenment. As Cesarani observes, and I quote him, Voltaire's rage against the anomalous persistence of the Jews would be echoed by rationalist, materialist, and progressive thinkers of the left for generations to come. And you can see that through the 19th century. There isn't time to go into that. Even, we might add, unto this generation, due to what Sutcliffe calls, at the end of his introduction to Judaism and the Enlightenment, quote, the continued anomalousness of Jewish identity in today's world. An identity that does not sit squarely into the Enlightenment box, the treasure chest or war chest handed down to the left. Now, you can hardly blame the left for the anomalousness of Jewish difference. It's fairer to blame the Jews, and why not, since they're to blame for everything else. But the question, of course, is not who is to blame, but how the left copes. Which brings me to the question, has the left lost its way over Israel, or is it the other way round? Is it Israel that has lost its way? Now, this is just a context, so I'm going to very quickly run through the premises that underlie the question, and then I'm going to step to one side of the question and go to what I want to discuss. There are two premises underlying this question. One is that the attitude of the left to Israel has turned, that this turn occurred recently, and that it continues to this day. It has turned, allegedly, from being passively sympathetic and even actively supportive to being unfriendly and positively hostile to Israel. The other premise is that Israel has changed. The state that was formed as a haven for refugees and as a secular light to the nations, a model of social democracy and a laboratory for collectivism in the form of the kibbutz, has become an outpost of the American imperium, a bastion of Reaganomics, a colonizing power in its own right, an oppressive ethnocracy, and a hotbed of religious nationalism. Now, there's more than a grain of truth in both premises, but there is also so much oversimplification and misconception that a line from 40 Towers comes to mind. When Dr. Abbott, a psychiatrist on holiday in the Torquay Hotel, witnesses one of Basil's bouts of bizarre behaviour, he declares dryly, there's enough material there for an entire conference. <laughs> well, where do you begin to pick these premises apart? There's enough material there for an entire conference. Luckily, it's an issue I can sidestep. Because the question of whether the British left has lost its way, or indeed found its way, is a question for another lecture or another time. So is the question of whether Israel has strayed from its path. The question that I wish to raise is this. Is the left today, given its own tradition and the conceptual apparatus with which it operates, capable of comprehending a specifically Jewish angle on Israel? 
Now, there is, of course, more than one Jewish angle on Israel-Palestine. There's an entire debate among Jews, as Jews, on this subject. There are at least as many positions that Jews, as Jews, adopt on Israel-Palestine as there are among any other group, including the left, which, of course, includes many Jews, some of whom think about the issues without any sense of their own Jewishness, while others also think about them as Jews, if you follow me. It's the as Jews that I want to spotlight. What does this mean? Does it mean anything to the left? To my observation, this question causes discomfort on the left. Sometimes it is simply dismissed out of hand, the question of whether thinking about the issues of Israel-Palestine as Jewish, as Jews, means anything. Sometimes it is simply dismissed out of hand, as though even to raise the subject of Jewish identity is beyond the political bell. And at other times, it is taken on board, but in a way that distorts the meaning of as Jews. I recall a conversation I had last year with someone who played a significant part in publishing a British left-wing periodical in the 1970s. To her, Israel is a theocracy not because of the creeping influence of the religious right in the Knesset, nor because of the clout of the kippah-wearing settlers, but purely because it is a state that calls itself Jewish. Judaism is a religion. Government by religion is theocracy. Therefore, Israel is a theocracy, QED. I do not think she is alone on the left in being susceptible to this fallacy. At times on the left, you encounter the view that there is an onus on you as a Jew to declare whether you, sorry, to declare where you stand on Israel and to dissociate yourself publicly from any policies that are oppressive. This looks at first like anti-Semitism, lumping all Jews together and holding them collectively responsible, and there might at times be an anti-Semitic motive or at least an undercurrent for this view, but it is also explicable in another way. It is a view that flows from the notion that all Jews everywhere form a political community somehow whatever word one uses for it. This is certainly an angle on Israel that some Jews, as Jews, affirm, since one version of this view, that Jews are a nation, lies at the heart of hardcore political Zionism. <clears throat> it does not follow, however, that those people on the left who think this way comprehend that angle, for there is something in it for them, even, ironically, if they are anti-Zionist. It offers a solution to the, what I called earlier the ultimate Jewish question, where in the scheme of things do Jews belong? Where do you place them? It's not the left alone for whom this question arises. It arises also for Jews, as Jews, which is precisely why some Jews have opted for hardcore political Zionism. It appears to them to be a way of settling the question, once and for all, of the Jewish place in the sun. And that is the crucial difference. For the left, the problem posed by the anomalousness of the Jews is theoretical. Where do they fit into the abstract scheme of things? For Jews, for whom not fitting in is an experience rather than an idea, the question is profoundly existential. Where in the scheme of the world do we belong, bearing in mind our history? This is the material background, the real context, the iron frame which Jews as Jews, sorry, when Jews as Jews, debate Israel-Palestine. Now, saying this, I am not begging the question in favour of Zionism. Anyone who knows me will know that I believe that the national view of Jewish identity is bankrupt. I'm not a Zionist. But not unlike the nationalist version of black power, 
It is a view rooted in a particular historical experience of exclusion and discrimination. And when people on the left assimilate, and I use that word deliberately, assimilate Zionism to Western imperialism and colonialism, something that I have encountered time and again, dissolving the difference that the Jewish factor makes, they dissolve my difference too. It be the Muslim case. Going from the Jewish case to the Muslim case is quite a leap. For the difficulty posed by Jewish identity is that it is anomalous and therefore opaque, Muslim identity appears, on the contrary, to be transparent. This is one reason why I said that the two cases diverge. It appears to the left to belong unambiguously in the box marked religion. This tends to seal its fate. For the left, Muslim identity did not pose a problem when it wasn't Muslim, when it was, say, Bengali, or, after 1971, Bangladeshi, or Pakistani, or whatever part of the ethnicity of an immigrant population from South Asia or wherever, when essentially it stayed at home or in the mosque. But as I said in my introduction, Muslim difference has moved into the political foreground in Britain, at least since the Rushdie affair, and has come to dominate the debate over multiculturalism, which brings me to the second of those two either-ors that I mentioned. Has the left lost its way over multiculturalism or is it the other way round? Is it multiculturalism that has lost its way? Well, once again, I'm going to set out the premises of this question, but only to provide the context within which I'm then going to go for the point that I want to make. And also, as I say, to, to, to set up a kind of window through which to look into the mind of at least part of the left. The first premise of this question, this either or, is it the left that's lost its way or is it multiculturalism that's lost its way? The first premise of this question is rather different from the first premise of the other either-or, the one about Israel and the left. Because if the left has lost its way over multiculturalism, it is because it is in a state of disarray, not because it has undergone a general shift of opinion from supportive to hostile. And this is the, another respect in which the two cases, the Muslim and the Jewish cases, diverge. Once upon a time, the first premise goes, it would have seemed odd to reject multiculturalism in the name of liberal values, but not any longer. Think of Polly Toynbee or Kenan Malik. On the other hand, perhaps the staunchest defenders of multiculturalism are on the liberal left. Uku Parekh and Tariq Modoud come to mind. Similarly, certain groups on the far left, such as Respect and SWP, have joined forces with certain Muslim groups, while others have railed against the rise of ethnic solidarity at the cost of class solidarity. Many, possibly most, on the left are confused, supportive of diversity, but also wary of religious assertiveness. The debate is a mess, or rather a maze, where there are a few straight lines, many dead ends, and a number of surprising intersections where left meets right and sometimes turns into it. So the first premise is this. The left today is all over the place. It has lost what was once its clear resolve in favour of multiculturalism. The second premise is that multiculturalism as a political idea is not what it used to be. It used to be a way of saying that you do not have to conform to the white British norm to belong in British society. You can come from any ethnic background, sport any complexion, subscribe to any faith or none, and you will enjoy the same rights and the same protections as the majority. It was a term in the same lexicon that includes anti-colonialism and anti-racism, an expression of the left's commitment to equality over privilege, freedom over oppression, and universalism over exclusion, three links 
in the Enlightenment chain. This was multiculturalism avant la lettre in the halcyon days of the 1960s and 1970s. And then in the 1990s, the plot was lost. This is the second premise. Why? Mainly because Muslims began to assert their Muslim difference. Multiculturalism today, the premise continues, diverts attention away from racism and economic injustice. It divides ethnic groups against each other. It is used as a cover for various evils, such as subjugating women, threatening free speech, and empowering conservative forces within minority communities. This and more is the charge sheet that constitutes the second premise. Are these premises true? Partly, but they are as full of confusion and distortion as the two premises of the other, either or, the one about Israel. For, you can see why I said at the beginning that the title of this lecture was so daunting, because in order to do justice to the title, Jews, Muslims and the Left Today, it would be necessary to discuss these issues, and it's impossible to do that in a lecture, and I've gone for a completely different angle. As I've explained, I've gone for a look at the structure of the mind that is thinking about these issues rather than answers to the questions themselves. As I say, the two premises that I just um, articulated are full of confusion and distortion. Uh, for one thing, as the historian David Feldman points out in his essay, Why the English Like Turbans, there has always been a multiculturalism of the right. For another, as he also reminds us, the left has not always been on the side of the angels. Once again, there's enough material here for an entire conference, and this is not a conference. What I want to pinpoint is the central role attributed to Islam in the second premise. The idea that in the 1990s, everything changed, mainly because Muslims began to assert their Muslim difference. Consider what Polly Toynbee calls the liberal dilemma over Islam, which roughly is this. Should you speak out against aspects of Islam that you consider immoral and thus keep company with racists? Or should you stay stum, my phrase, not hers, and mollify Muslim sentiment, her phrase, not mine? Now that there is an issue here, no one can deny. But the issue is not the issue. The phrase mollify Muslim sentiment, dripping with innuendo, is a clue as to what the real issue is. And as she makes crystal clear in article after article in The Guardian, the real issue is what she calls the political power of religion. Toynbee is hostile to all religions, but Islam is a special case for her and she especially targets it. She is disarmingly candid about why. I quote, Islam is the most visible and alarming threat from foreigners to hard-won secularism, tolerance, feminism or social democracy. End of quote. In other words, more than other religions, it contravenes the second liberal left principle that I mentioned earlier. It fails to keep the volume down. It doesn't stay in its own place. Notice that it's brought in by foreigners. She doesn't specify Asians, but the old Enlightenment view of Asia hovers in the background, it seems to me. Thus, Islam is written into the negative side of her liberal left script, dragging multiculturalism along with it from the positive side. The overall structure of that script is clearly visible in the following sentence from her article in the name of God. I quote, Enlightenment values are in peril, not because these mad beliefs are really growing, but because too many rational people seek to appease and understand unreason. Reason versus unreason, the basic binary of the Enlightenment scheme with religion equated with the latter and Islam cast as the other. 
I feel slightly embarrassed because these pickings, illustrating the analysis from the previous section of my lecture, are almost too easy. I do not say that Toynbee's approach to religion in general and to Islam in particular is representative of the liberal left, let alone of the left as a whole, but nor do I think that the bent of her mind is exceptional. On the contrary, it reveals, albeit in an exaggerated form, the shape of the mind of the left at its birth, a shape that endures to this day. Much of the left, across the spectrum, would like to place a notice at the entrance to the political domain. Religion, keep out. But what is this thing called religion? Not just one thing is the answer. And as anthropologists Sandra Hausner and David Gellner say in their recent study of Nepalis in Britain, and I quote them, it is time to break up the category religion and to recognise that whenever it is used as if it means only one thing, it is being misused. Not that you have to be an anthropologist to think this. You can also be a secular atheist activist on the left, like my friend Mark Marchese, who has criticised his fellow lefties for their, in his words, monolithic assumptions about religion. The assumption that religion is either a stock of weird and wacky propositions that no one over the mental age of seven would endorse unless they were in the grip of fear and superstition, or a set of meaningless rituals, or a collection of rules that believers follow blindly, is a caricature worthy of an 18th century cartoonist. Naturally, there are religious people whom these descriptions fit, but proneness to being gullible, superficial and thoughtless is a fact about people, including people who talk mindlessly about religion, and not a fact about religion. To call Islam and Judaism religions, where this implies a set of beliefs that you can only hold if you suspend your critical faculties, is to demean them. Language matters, and perhaps it's time to place religion, like race, in scare quotes as a warning that the word is unsafe. And now my brief postscript. Nathan the Wise. Politics is the art of living together by reasoning together. But, and now that whisper of Socrates seems louder and more insistent, what is reason? And what is reasoning together? This lecture has been a small attempt at opening up this question as a question for the left today, when history no longer works outwards from Europe and the globe is shrinking. If we are still in the midst of today, when will tomorrow begin? And what will reasoning together, reasoning across the chasms, be like in tomorrow's world? Perhaps the beginning of wisdom for the left is to know, like Socrates, the limits of its understanding. This does not necessarily mean that there are more things in heaven and earth, or even that there is a heaven, than are dreamt of in left-wing philosophy. But it does mean knowing that there is more than one understanding, more than one way of figuring the human predicament on planet earth. Judaism and Islam are cases in point. I think of them as grand traditions rather than religions. Tradition, says Stuart Hall, and I quote, functions less as doctrine than as repertoires of meaning. A repertoire is a set of possible performances. So following Hall, following Hall's lead, we can say that a grand tradition is one that contains resources for thinking, symbols, a vocabulary, a literature, a set of references, and also for rethinking. There is much rethinking going on today on the status of women and other issues within the understanding of Islam. And if the left is itself a grand tradition, then perhaps it too needs to do a spot of rethinking. Perhaps there is reason to dismantle the Enlightenment chain so that reason can reassemble itself
differently. The grand illusion of the Enlightenment, an illusion without which it might not have won its battles and which is still with us, I think, to this day, was this. It is possible to reason about ethics and politics from a point above the human fray, in a space that transcends all traditions, a place that is no place. But we are creatures of the earth, not minds floating in the ether. We can aspire to reach the plane of the universal, but we inhabit the ground of the particular. The Enlightenment opened up one route to the universal, though, by the way, it also spawned the devil's seed, just like religions do. <laughs> but as Salman Said remarks, and I quote him, universal values can be generated from Islam. They can be generated from Judaism too, a point I was making with the title of my last book, Being Jewish and Doing Justice. This brings me to Nathan, the hero of the play Nathan the Wise by Gotthold Lessing, published in 1779. As I have said, Judaism on the whole did not get a good press in the Enlightenment. Lessing was an exception. He sought to portray Jews in a positive light. He made a Jew, Nathan, a figure of wisdom and the epitome of religious tolerance. At one point in the play, Nathan asks rhetorically, are Jews and Christians, Christians and Jews before they are human beings? He implies that he is a human being first and a Jew second. He is a good soul, but we need a wiser Nathan. A Nathan who says that he is a human being by way of being Jewish, and that a Muslim is a human being by way of being Muslim, and so on. This is not to suggest that being Jewish means just one thing, any more than being left means just one thing, nor that it excludes having more than one identity. No tradition dwells in splendid isolation, and as our paths cross on planet Earth, so our traditions crossbreed and multiply. It is only to say that we are embodied beings, embedded in this place or that, drawing on its repertoire of meaning. It is to say, in short, that being Muslim and being Jewish are variations on a single theme, being human. They're not failures to achieve that universal humanity. So in closing, my pitch to the left, whether it's to people in the room or the face in the mirror, is this. Keep in mind the motto that Socrates, the man who stands for reason, took from a temple dedicated to a god. Know yourself. Know your own tradition. Know you have one and reflect on it. Do not diss different traditions for being merely particular. The particular is universal. Difference is ubiquitous. Deal with it. Thank you.